This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm crazy grateful for all of you who subscribe, share, and leave reviews. If this is your first time, welcome to the Elevate community. Like our home church, Living Word, I and the Elevate leaders work as hard as we can to build an atmosphere of love to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. It would mean the world to us if you helped us get the word out by sharing this episode on social media. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate, visit us at iloveelevate.com, follow us on Facebook and Instagram, and subscribe to the podcast. Thank you for everything you do, which brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. What is up, Elevate? Do we have any Surge campers in here? Did y'all love Surge? Awesome, awesome. Elevate, we are here for one reason, and it is one reason only. It has nothing to do with our friends. It has nothing to do with the fun or the colorful lights. It has everything to do with Jesus. We are here to elevate Jesus. Elevate Jesus. That's right. Amen, amen, amen. So we are jumping back into our series on who God is. We are not studying his works. We are studying his character, his attributes. What comes into our minds when we think of God is the very most important thing about us. Our view of God will shape our words, our actions. It will shape our purposes in life. That comes down to nothing nothing less than our perspective of God. There are two categories of God's attributes. One, God's greatness, his infinite power, and the second is his perfect character, his goodness. Attributes like wisdom, justice, love, faithfulness, truthfulness, and those attributes are ones that he actually shares with us. He allows us to experience his character through us to each other, through us back to him. So if I was to say, God is good, how would you respond? Oh, there's some 90s people in here. God is good, and all the time, because that's his nature. We're going to do that one more time, because this is worth getting excited about. God is good, and all the time, because that is his nature. His goodness is a vast subject, because his goodness is inherent in every other attribute. His wisdom is good. His love is good. His wrath is good. His justice is good. His omnipotence is good. His sovereignty is good. It touches and is woven into every other attribute of his. And I'd like to look at his goodness from as two different aspects. There's two sides of God's goodness. There is his moral goodness, his uprightness, his righteousness, his perfection. And then there is his goodness that is revealed in grace, kindness, charity towards his creation. Both are aspects of his goodness. When we're talking about God's moral goodness, we're talking about that he is upright and perfect in all of his decisions and all of his character and everything that he does is good. He is objectively good. And I want to delineate the difference between objective and subjective. Do you all know the difference between objective and subjective? Yes? No? Good. This is a good place to start. Objective is something that is True, it's a standard. It is proven. Subjective is opinion, how you feel about something. If I was to say, and I do lay out the disclaimer that sometimes this guy is not always blue, but say 
Today is a really blue sky. And I say, the sky is blue. That is objective. Because you can actually take scientific instruments and say, the, the color that is being reflected by the moisture in the air is the blue light. So therefore, the sky is blue. And if someone is colorblind and they say it's brown, they are actually wrong because this is an objective truth. If you were to say the sky is pretty, that is no longer objective. It's subjective. I can't argue with you. It's your opinion. It's subjective. The sky is pretty to you. Personally, I don't, you know, maybe as a kid, I had this bad experience with a blue crayon and maybe I don't like blue skies anymore. That would be weird. That's some sort of like, I don't know, DC villain origin story. But that's the difference between objective and subjective. And there is a standard for right and wrong, and it is objective. And we're living in a culture that is arguing that right and wrong is subjective. There's no such thing as right or wrong, just your perspective. Just what is right or wrong to you. It's relative to you. Those people are called relativists. They just believe that right and wrong morality is just between you and yourself. You create your own standard and you live according to your own standard. There was a court case back in 2015 about an incident that happened in 2013. There's a young man who was 14 years old named Philip Chisholm. He followed, after school was over, he followed his 24-year-old teacher into the bathroom where he attacked her, he raped her, he murdered her, he put her body into a trash can, rolled her to the woods behind a school. Then he took her bleeding body, still, still alive but unconscious, he posed her, stepped back, and painted a canvas of the scene he created. Then he buried her, stole her credit cards, went and bought, bought a bunch of stuff. And they found her, they convicted him, and they brought him to trial. And this is the defense's argument, and this is the, um, the prosecutor's argument. The defense attorney said this, that he suffered from an acute psychotic episode brought on by early schizophrenia. And I, I want to read a quote from her. He was, when Philip Chisholm followed her into the bathroom, he was not himself. He didn't choose to do this. What other than an overpowering mental illness could have caused Philip Chisholm to do these acts? He must have been psychotic. So her argument is, because he did it, he must be psychotic. But this is, this is called a logical fallacy because it's circular. Because he did it, he must be crazy. But he must be crazy because he did it. It's circular. It doesn't actually create any real friction. It doesn't create any real rubber to the road. She's claiming that the only explanation of his extreme brutality is if some sort of outward force compelled him to do it. What other than an overpowering mental illness, she says. She denies that anyone in their right mind could commit evil. But it doesn't take an outside force to commit atrocities, does it? It actually takes an inward one, and that is sin. And I love the prosecuting attorney. If you watch this online, She's a brilliant orator. She really knows what she's talking about. And the prosecuting attorney was named Kate McDougal, and she has about 35 minutes. I want to give you a section of that. She says, we think we understand prejudice. Like, What comes into your mind when you think about prejudice? But let me suggest to you, there is a different kind of prejudice, one far more appealing and one we hold a lot closer to our heart, and that is our view of the world. The idea that things are predictable, our hope. There's not one single person in this courtroom that wants to believe that a 14-year-old boy could have done this and not be crazy. 
But doing something so awful does not make you crazy. Ladies and gentlemen, let me respectfully suggest to you that Philip Chisholm is more entitled, is no more entitled to your prejudice of hope. There is an overwhelming evidence in this case beyond any reasonable doubt that he was not suffering from a mental disorder or a defect, but that Philip Chisholm knew right from wrong, could choose right from wrong. He did repeatedly over the course of that afternoon. He just didn't do it when it mattered. He had a goal, a terrible, terrible purpose. You see, what house of cards is the defense attorney trying to create? She's trying to say that evil is an external force. Therefore, he's not responsible for his own actions. And the, the prosecuting attorney pulls the rug out of it. She pulls the rug out of it, and she reveals this common prejudice that we just want to believe. Don't miss this. We want to believe that humans, that we are inherently good. Every Disney movie teaches us that there's good in everybody. And that is the prejudice sometimes that we look through, that we just believe people are good. That if they do something really bad, it must not be their fault. It must be this external force. And Scripture teaches us the exact opposite, that we are actually inherently evil. That evil comes from our very nature, and it expresses what evil will. Further, she made the claim that he chose to do wrong. Now, I'll tell you that in the words that she used, that he knew right from wrong, he just didn't choose to do right. She is making a very powerful statement that there is objective right and wrong. Does everyone in this building agree that Philip Chisholm did something wrong? Does everyone agree that Philip Chisholm, murdering and raping his teacher, he cut her throat so deep he chipped her spine with a box cutter? He did wrong. I'm glad that we agree on this. If there's anyone who disagrees, I'm a little concerned about you. I'm glad you're here. Jesus loves you. You need to get saved. But how can we know that he did wrong unless we are, unless we are assuming that there is an objective right? Anytime someone says, oh, there's no such thing as right and wrong, but they will say that something wrong was done, they have to assume that there is a standard by which they compare what is wrong. Where does that standard come from? Objective morality is the belief that there is an external, consistent, complete, and unwavering moral standard by which our actions are compared to no right and wrong. Did you all follow that? I'm sorry we don't have the screen. I'll read it one more time. If you believe in objective morality, you believe that there is a consistent, complete, external, unwavering moral standard, and by this our actions are compared to know whether they're right or wrong. How do you know if you're building a puzzle, how do you know if you're going in the right direction? How do you know you're doing a good job in this puzzle when you're halfway through? The pieces match. It's beginning to look like the picture on the box. You look at it and you're like, it's a puppy. And the box over here is a hot air balloon. And you're like, this is wrong. I'm in the wrong puzzle. The pieces are wrong. So the picture is an objective perspective and you will know you're going in the right direction when the pieces start matching, when they fit together, when they look like the objective picture. How do you know when the puzzle's finished? Because it looks like the picture. This is our concept, a Christian biblical concept, that there is objective truth, that God is the perfect 
picture by which every right or wrong action, by which all of morality, by which all of creation is compared. Creation, our decisions, our actions, our words are as good or as evil as they compare to how good this perfect picture, this perfection, this standard of morality, God's goodness is. Relative morality argues that there is no such thing as right or wrong. Everyone can have their own moral standard by which they judge their actions. Scripture calls this everyone doing what is right in their own eyes. If I can defend this, if I can validate it, if I can justify it, then I should be allowed to do it. Well, I'm not hurting anybody. This this isn't affecting anybody else but me, so it's okay that I do whatever I want. As long as I can rationalize it. Well, they hurt me first, therefore it's okay. Are you following me? C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, gives eight reasons that we can look around and prove objective morality. And then he takes it a step forward. He takes it a step forward. Like, you just got to go read Mere Christianity. It's a little dense. It's so worth it. He says that if we can prove objective morality, then it's easy to prove that it has to be outside the human creature. And if it's outside the human creature, it must be above the human creature. And if it's above the human creature... There's nothing except the possibility of God. And you can actually prove God's existence through the fact that there seems to be a moral framework in the human condition. Why do people fight so hard for relative or subjective morality? Why are they tooth and nail? This is being taught in our colleges. It's being taught everywhere that there's no such right and wrong. It's relative. It's subjective. Because, as C.S. Lewis argued, if there is an objective reality that everyone recognizes, then there must be a higher orchestrator. And if there is a higher orchestrator, it means that I don't get to do what I want anymore. I am now under the dominion of that creator. In short, we want to do whatever we want. So as long as it's subjective morality... I get that freedom. But there is objective goodness. Deuteronomy 32.4. Hope you guys have your notebooks from camp, right? Y'all are taking notes? Deuteronomy 32.4. The rock. His work. Whose work? The rock. The unmoving, unwavering, solid foundation. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness without iniquity. Just and upright is he. He is objective perfection. James 1.17, every good gift, every good gift is, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. Mark 10.18, no one is good except God alone. He is the creator of space, of matter, and of time. And his moral laws are inherent in everything he's created. His creation reflects his creator. His moral laws are woven into everything he's done. His intentions, motivations, actions, and outcomes of his plan are perfect and good. Therefore, everything he does is worthy of our praise. Now, you need to understand, before we go any further, that God is not good according to how we define goodness. You have to understand that. That is, 
you're going to struggle in your Christian life if you can't reprimand around this concept. God is not good according to how we define goodness. We must define goodness according to the very character of God. If you define God according to your goodness, you're going to be going through trials and tests and hard times, and you're going to be saying, God must not be good because right now I'm struggling, and it hurts. But remember that God is omniscient. He knows everything. If that is true, then if you had all knowledge, you would make, don't miss this. If you had all knowledge, you would actually make the same decision for your life that God made. And he is all good, and so he's going to make the very best decisions for our life, which sometimes means he chisels us with hard times. God is not good according to our standards. We must change our standards according to God's goodness. Like a puzzle, everything is more or less good by how close it is to God's perfect character. And evil, if God is good, evil is whatever is in rebellion against God. C.S. Lewis says that evil is the absence of God. Evil is saying, I see your goodness and I reject that. That is evil. Philip Chisholm was in rejection of God's goodness. When we lie or gossip or pursue our lust or cheat or do any of these things, we are in rebellion against God's goodness. Isaiah 64, 6. We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, whenever we're showing like, hey, here's the, here is how awesome I am, they are nothing but filthy rags. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. And this brings us to the second aspect of his goodness. Because the only way that Adam and Eve, when they sinned, didn't disintegrate in God's presence. The only way they didn't do like a Thanos snap in God's presence, the second that they sinned, is because God's goodness, his kindness, his charity, his grace is poured out to his creation. That God would see their sin and not obliterate them is giving his love and grace and kindness that they do not deserve. That is the definition of grace, to give blessing that someone doesn't deserve. And that is what God does with us day in and day out. This is how, the, this is how people, mankind around the globe, can be as evil and despicable as we are, and God allows us one more breath. He allows us one more morning to wake up. He allows the righteous and the unrighteous to have gifts and talents and experience friendship and what it means to feel loved. He is pouring out his goodness on his creation. This is his fancy word, omnibenevolence. That is his kindness and graciousness towards us, the undeserving. See, all goodness is of him. That's what it means, omnibenevolence. All goodness is him. And any goodness that we see or act in is from him. He is the perpetual fountain of goodness. There are waves of goodness pouring out of his throne and out of his heart towards us. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Psalm 106, 1. Praise Yahweh. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. 
for his steadfast love endures forever. He is worthy of continual thanksgiving as we recognize the goodness he showers down on us. He is merciful, charitable, gracious, generous, giving, caring. He lavishes us with gifts from his goodness. I'd like to point out three categories of his omnibenevolence. That's fun to say, by the way. Omnibenevolence. Y'all can say it. I know you kind of want to. Omnibenevolence. Sorry it's not up there. The first category of his omnibenevolence is that God is good to all of his creation, even the animal kingdom. Psalm 145, verse 9, 15 through 17 says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. Yahweh is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. He cares about the animals. Remember that? Matthew 6, 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Psalm 104, 25-27. Oh, this is a cool verse. Go look this one up and find a commentary. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both great and small. There go the ships and the Leviathan, which you formed and plays in it, talking about the sea. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. Remember the last words in Jonah? God is talking to Jonah and is like, remember the people in Nineveh? Do you want to just wipe them all out? Remember the innocent people there? And his last words are, do you remember the people and the cows too? It's like, who cares about the cows? God does. He has goodness towards all of his creation. The second thing that we see about his goodness is that he is good to even unbelievers. Theologians call this common grace, that his grace is common around all the world. This is not a a grace that saves, but it is a grace that God extends so that people may come to salvation. It's also a grace that he extends so that whenever they stand before judgment, if they denied him, there is grounds to say, I gave you every good thing, every sign that you needed to come to salvation and you rejected me. And so it is just that they are punished. So his common grace is a beautiful aspect that he's woven into his creation. Acts 14.7 In past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God blesses unbelievers with marriage, children, accomplishments, talents, discoveries, friendships, enjoyment of his creation, the ability to feel loved, and and he gives patience, allowing them to wake up another morning so that perhaps they'll turn to him. The first one is that his common grace around the world, his goodness poured out, may lead sinners to repentance. And the second one, as I mentioned earlier, is to give them no excuse when they stand for punishment. Romans 2, 4-5, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent, that is in, you wouldn't turn to forgiveness, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So God is good to all creation, He's good to unbelievers, and he's also good to 
believers, his people. He's good to them with physical blessings, like the ones he's talking about in Matthew 9-11. through Or which one of you, when his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? But if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? But God also gives spiritual blessings. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Psalm 34.10 says that those who seek Yahweh lack no good thing. Psalm 84.11 For Yahweh God is a sun and a shield. Yahweh bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold for those who walk uprightly. God delights in meeting our needs. He delights in giving good gifts to us. And he expresses his goodness to his people in several ways. The first is the ultimate expression of his goodness, and that is that he would redeem those who were in active rebellion against him. Those of us who were spitting and hating and biting at the very hand that was reaching out towards with us with grace, that he would go to the cross for us. That is grace. That he pours out his love for us. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His goodness also allows and even ordains trials and suffering. His goodness ordains suffering. Take that to the bank and wrestle with it. I don't think that's how that saying goes. He allows it to shape his people. Listen, Romans 5, 3-5, we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Michelangelo is known for his statue of the day of David. Y'all seen that statue? One day someone came to him and said, Michelangelo, how on earth did you know how to chisel away? You just have a block of stone and you remove chunks until this beautiful, this beautiful statue is there. How did you do that? And Michelangelo's response was, I just removed every piece that didn't look like David. God is using suffering in our life as a hammer and as a chisel, and he's chiseling away every piece of us that doesn't look like his son, Jesus Christ. And it's painful, and it's hard, and he uses life like sandpaper to buff away at us sometimes. He uses that chisel and that hammer, dink, 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 and it's, ow, ow, yow. And God is creating us to reflect his image. I love what Louis Giglio says. He said that so many times when we pray, at the top of our prayer list is, God, take away the chisel. God, take away the hammer. We're actually we're, we're asking for God to take the things out of our lives which God is using in our lives. And that is his goodness. That's painful to accept whenever we realize and we wrap our minds around some of the things that that means. And God is using even the painful things in our lives as his goodness. 
So his ultimate expression of goodness is the cross. His goodness even allows us and ordains sometimes trials and suffering. And his goodness transfers through us to other people. Matthew 5, 44 through 45 says, But I say to you, brace yourself, love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on who? The evil and the good. He sends rain on who? The just and the unjust. So what's he saying? If God does good to the unjust and to the evil, and he is also calling his people to be good to the evil and the unjust. He is calling us to extend grace to the very people that we avoid at all costs. He extends his goodness through his people to others. Ephesians 2.10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We should walk in his goodness, not for ourselves. We walk in his goodness for others, even those we struggle with. This is the kind of God we can trust. One of our enemy's greatest strategies is to get us to doubt God's goodness. That is his strategy. May we never shrink back. May we never cave in or waver on seeing God as good. That all goodness is of God, from God, through God. He is the objective means by which we know what is good. May we repel those lies with the shield of faith and cut through that deception with the sword of his word. Deuteronomy 32.4 The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Psalm 34.8 Oh, taste and see that Yahweh is good. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Recap. God's goodness is expressed in his moral perfection and in his undeserved blessings on creation. Because he is the source and standard of all goodness, morality is objective, unwavering, and consistent. We are not good. In fact, we stand in gross rebellion to goodness himself. Because of his omnibenevolence, because of his grace, his kindness, his charity, he withholds judgment and even gives gifts to creation, believers, and even unbelievers. He expresses his goodness in one, forming his people, two, loving through his people, and three, the ultimate expression was the cross of Jesus Christ. God is good. And all the time. All right, here's your challenge. Take a minute and think. Who in your life is undeserving of your goodness? Who are they? Who is undeserving of your ever being nice to them, of ever sending a kind text message, of ever liking a post, 
of ever even locking eyes with them. Who doesn't deserve your kindness? Who doesn't deserve your charity? Who is it in your life? Who does not deserve your goodness? Don't forget that all goodness is actually of God. And God is extending kindness and goodness to them. So if you... Okay, I need two volunteers. Caroline and Cruz, come on up. Yule, come on up. Quick, 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 quick. All right. So, let's say Cruz hurt my feelings real bad. I uh, know. Not really. Cruz is one of my favorite people. Cruz hurt my feelings really, really bad. Caroline is going to represent God. Caroline, would you please extend your hand towards Cruz? Caroline is extending goodness to Cruz. Now, what if I... In my offense, if I reject Cruz, what else am I doing? I'm standing in opposition to God. I am rivaling God's decision, God's kindness towards Cruz with my selfishness. Y'all can sit down. Who in your life does not deserve your small, fickle, human goodness. Because God is extending the very torture, death, and resurrection of his son to them. Everyone you lock eyes with, even those who hurt you, God gave his son. God himself died for them. Who are we? to say they don't deserve the very goodness of God, which God gave to us when he saved us from the very sin that sends us to the same hell. We have to be careful when we start writing people off. So my challenge to you is to think of that person that you have not been extending goodness to. And go and be good to them. Luke 7, Luke 6, 27 through 28. Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And Jesus is not like me who is standing here with all sorts of skewed motives Jesus is saying this from the very mouth that will be hit by his enemies. And he will speak, Father, forgive them. He is speaking from the very character of goodness who will be persecuted, hated, and abused. So may we follow, may we pick up the cross that Jesus picked up, the cross of self-denial, and follow him in the goodness of God. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Oh, Lord, let your word do its work in our hearts. Let it begin to be a bleach against the blackness of our sin. Thank you for your redemption at the cross. Thank you that you see us under the righteousness of Jesus 
That is the ultimate goodness. Lord, begin to purge and chisel away everything that is us until there is the image of your Son in sanctification. Lord, let us begin to see our sufferings differently, our trials differently, those things that hurt us. Let us begin to see them differently. Let us stop praying for the chisel and the hammer to go away, and let us start praying that we can become softer stone for the work that you're doing in us in every situation. We love you, Father. May we walk in your goodness. In Jesus' holy and precious name, amen. Thank you for listening. Episodes are recorded every Wednesday at Elevate Student Ministry. All students, 7th through 12th grades, are welcome.